Wow, it has been so good to be here already this morning. And Merlin, I just want to say, if, if I caught that, it's because you were gone in August that that special music happened today instead of then. Thank you. I mean, I could just sit and listen to bluegrass music for a long, long time. It was really good. And what a joy to worship with you, to hear you as a congregation share with each other in testimony and prayer requests. And, you know, it's one of the joys for me and my role right now with, with the conference is to be able to come to churches like yours and, and worship with you. And, and I'm telling you, I served as a pastor for, um, I think it was 13 years at a church in Florida and then seven years at a church in Ohio. We live in Ohio now. My office is there in Rosedale with the conference. And I'm telling you, the heartbeat of our conference is not in my office in Rosedale. The heartbeat of our conference is here in this church and other churches like it. Who you're on the front, front row, the front line of living out the gospel, living out your faith each and every day in the workplace, coming together to worship, encourage each other and be the body of Christ. And, and I just love that I have that privilege of being able to come and, and go to different places and, and here at Riverview this morning. This is a place I've never been before. And I wasn't even quite sure what to expect. I, I don't think I've even seen pictures of the building before and drove in this morning. And it's not really the picture I had in my mind, but it's great. I don't know, I was just picturing some old church, I guess. And there, I guess I heard there used to be one out here in the parking lot. It's so wonderful. And, and young people and children, wow. You've got, a, you've got a crowd of them here. It's, it's, it's alive, and it's, it's great to be here. As a young pastor myself, quite a number of years ago, I looked up to your former pastor, Glenn. Glenn and his wife, Elsie. Glenn was one of those guys that was solid, steady leader in our conference. And I don't remember him saying a whole lot in CMC circles, but when he said something, it was worth listening to. Um, I also enjoyed getting to know your assistant pastor, Joe, and, and Rhoda a little better. Just last weekend, they were at a cohort in our area for, for new pastors, and I got to sit in on the session where they were interviewed and, and talked a little bit about their lives and their background, so that was great to get to, know, get to know them in that way. And then, of course, I just have a, a tremendous amount of respect for Merlin and his leadership uh, here at the church, but also as uh, on the board for our mission board, and just for his ministry among CMC churches. He was at our church there in Ohio, what was that, a couple years ago, maybe a year and a half ago. And, and, and I want to thank you as a congregation for sharing him in the ways that you do with the larger church. And I, and I want you to know that, that God's word is true when it says, give and it will be given to you. I believe that applies to a congregation as well. That when you are generous with the resources that God has given you in sharing with the larger church, God blesses that. And I, I think I see that here this morning, just in the, the rich uh, spiritual life that in the testimonies that were shared this morning, that God is really doing something here. And I'm glad to be a part of that 
uh, for these next few days. I'm grateful to have my wife with me for these few days as well. I love it when she's able to travel with me. Uh, Maybe I'll give a little more of an introduction to our family tonight. But for now, I want to jump into the message, and I want to start just by kind of giving you an overview of what I've sensed from God, what God has put on my heart for these next few days together. If I were to give a title to kind of this series of messages over these next few days, it would be something along the lines of encountering Jesus. But maybe, maybe more than that, encountering Jesus on our journey of transformation. There's two parts to that. The first one, encountering Jesus. Really, every time I preach, and it usually happens as we're worshiping a few minutes before I get up to preach, whatever it might be, I have this kind of come-to-Jesus moment, if you will, where where I just cry out to God and I say, God, I've tried to put words to what you've been placing on my heart and I'm going to do my best to express that. But, but God, if, if, the people, if the people this morning only hear my words and the thoughts that come from me, it's not worth it. It's not worth our time. Lord, your people need to hear from you, their shepherd. They need to see you and not me. So in that sense, that's my prayer for our time together, that you would encounter, that you would not encounter Brian, this guy from conference, but that you would encounter Jesus. And then another part of that is is the scriptures we're going to be looking at are going to be stories of people's encounter with Jesus. And so I pray and hope that in those encounters that we too will encounter Jesus as we look at and learn from those passages of Scripture. But there's another part of that that I mentioned, encountering Jesus on our journey of transformation. Now, God can, and he does sometimes, just in the blink of an eye, cause this tremendous transformation in us. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. And there's that moment when we come to the foot of the cross and we encounter Jesus that he changes us from death to life. That transformation happens in a moment. Well, not even, a lot of times getting to that point is quite a a journey even. But there is that transformation that just happens. But God doesn't stop there. Even after that place where we cross that line of faith and we accept Jesus and he becomes our savior, he transforms, he saves us, he continues to do his transforming work in our lives, throughout our lives. There's no one in this room who is old enough to have kind of grown out of that transforming work of Jesus. It doesn't happen until we die. So we are on a journey. So much of God's transformation in our lives happens in the context of a journey. You as a congregation are on a journey together, a journey of transformation. When I was 18, I I traveled with the Gospel Echoes for a year not too far from here, their headquarters in Goshen, 
singing and sharing the gospel in prisons all across the country. And I'll never forget, it was right before we went on our, out on our first tour, we were gathered there in the office, and Marvin Beachy, the director of Gospel Echoes, he handed each of us on the team this little red New Testament that we could put in our pocket and take into prison with us. And I opened it up, and on the inside cover, he had written a message to me, and I imagine he did that to all the team members, and I don't know what he wrote to them, but he wrote a message to me, and then he wrote the verse Philippians 1.6, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will continue to perform it until the day of Christ Jesus. That's a journey. And I'm telling you, I, I, I lost that New Testament sometime since then in all our moves, and I... I, I keep thinking it's got to show up somewhere. The testament is gone, but that message is not. It's become a life verse for me throughout that year of ministry and gospel echoes, throughout my pastoral ministry, and now in my ministry with the, with the conference, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you, that moment of transformation, of changing from death to life, will continue it on until the day of Christ Jesus. Amen. We're on a journey. We're on a journey of transformation, and I hope and I pray that these next few days together will be some significant steps in that journey for us, that journey of transformation. Turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 32. Some of you are probably thinking, now wait, you said we're going to be looking at Scripture and talking about encountering Jesus, and then we turn to Genesis. What's going on? Hold on. Give me some rope here, and, and hopefully I won't hang myself with it. Genesis chapter 32, I'm going to start reading at verse 22. That night, Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two maidservants, and his 11 sons, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. After he had sent them across the stream, he sent over all his possessions. So Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Then the man said, let me go, for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go. Unless you bless me. The man asked him, what is your name? Jacob, he answered. Then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel. Because you have struggled with God and with men and have overcome. Jacob said, please tell me your name. But he replied, why do you ask my name? And then he blessed him there. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, It is because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. The sun rose above him as he passed Peniel, and he was limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the Israelites do not eat the tendon attached to the socket of the hip, because the socket of Jacob's hip was touched near the tendon. Oh, Lord, this morning as we... Look into your word. Open our eyes to see you. Open our ears to hear. 
Open our hearts to receive. Open our minds to understand. When God wants to do his transforming work in you, he will most often do it in the context of a journey. The context, I say it another way, the context of a process. We see that in, in the transformation in nature right now. And snow. I'm not too excited about this particular change, but that's just how, that's how things happen. There's this process of winter and spring and summer and fall as a butterfly goes through this process of transformation. And in so many ways, Jesus takes us through this process when he wants to do a transformation in our lives. So let's look at four phases that God takes us through on our journey of transformation. And we see them uh, so vividly here in, in, in the life of Jacob in this particular encounter that he has. And when we begin to understand these, this, this process, these processes, life makes a whole lot more sense. The first, pro, or the first phase of the journey is often a crisis. There's a crisis. Jacob got up, took his two wives, his two maidservants, 11 sons, and crossed the ford. He sent them across the stream. He sent over all his possessions. He's left alone, and he's at a crisis point in his life. The context of this story is that he's going to meet his brother. He was going to meet his brother who he had swindled out of his inheritance and he was he was scared to death or at least I don't know if he was scared to death but he was he was worried about this. It was a crisis. All his life he had been running from conflict and from trouble and there he is he's coming back around to face his brother. A crisis. Do you find yourself in the middle of a crisis in your life? Don't panic. Don't fret. Because often it is a crisis that God uses to begin some kind of transforming work that he wants to do in your life. A crisis is often an important part of the journey. We're going to see that really over and over the next few days in the lives of the people that we talk about. But back to Jacob's story. Guess what? Jacob was just about to learn a very important lesson, a lesson that we all must learn. He was about to learn that the greatest crisis in his life at that time was not that he was about to face his brother. His greatest crisis was his struggle with God for control. Jacob was left alone. A man wrestled with him till daybreak. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled. People have often debated who Jacob was wrestling here. And it seems that he understood because it says later in the passage that we just read that I came face to face with God. Also in the book of Hosea, it reflects on Jacob, Hosea 12, verse 3 and 4, in the womb he grasped his brother's heel as a man he struggled with God. He struggled with the angel and overcame him. He wept and begged for his favor. So perhaps it was the angel of the Lord who appeared at other times in the Old Testament that Jacob encountered here and who I believe is none other than a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ. 
So I ask you to give me some rope in talking about encountering Jesus and whether this was God that he wrestled with or, or the angel of the Lord or an angel that, that God had sent as a representative, it's, it's an encounter worth noting. But what Jacob perceived to be his crisis, and that was that he was gonna be encountering his brother who he was at, at odds with, was actually not the greatest crisis. The real crisis was his struggle with God for control, and this, the same is true for me and you. You may feel like the biggest battle in your life right now is a physical battle. You may feel the biggest struggle is a, is a financial struggle, a relational struggle, but the reality is the biggest battle, the biggest crisis in your life is whether you are going to let God be in control or whether you are going to try to take control. All his life, Jacob wanted to control things. He pulled this lever and this lever and this lever, always with the intent that he could be in control and he could be the one making the decision. And here he is, he's facing a crisis, but he comes face to face with the biggest crisis. Am I ever finally going to let God be in control? We face that same crisis. Will I trust God in this situation? That he is able to handle this and that he will show me what to do. And secondly, will I, will I obey God in this situation and do what I believe he is asking me to do? So God allows crisis points on our journey through life to get our attention we experience different ones of those, but again, let me come back to this. The thing that we all have in common is that ultimately the biggest crisis is whether we will concede control to God or try to control things ourselves. Another phase of the journey that we might find ourselves in is, is this test of commitment. Then the man said, let me go for his daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Now, because this was God, or at least God's agent, he obviously limited himself in this struggle with Jacob because he could have just said, it's enough, body slam, it's over. But he didn't. And why do you suppose he didn't? Why did God let the struggle go on? Why would he do that? Here's the lesson I believe. When God allows a crisis in your life, he doesn't always solve it immediately. Sometimes he lets it go on for a while. Why? He, I believe he wants to test our faith and our commitment to him. He wants to see if you're sincere about your walk with him, if you're sincere in wanting to grow with him, if you're sincere in what you believe. If you are one of those Christians who you're only in it as long as it seems to do well for you, but then you bail out and, and really, ultimately, God didn't do that for Jacob and he doesn't do that for you because he wants to find out for himself. He already knows. He does that. He tests us so that we come to a place of understanding ourselves. What if God answered every one of your prayers immediately? What if he solved your problems and rescued you from every crisis just immediately when you pray? Well, one, you would probably be a spoiled brat 
you would begin to treat God as this vending machine. I have this need, pull the lever, out comes my answer. God doesn't operate like that. God loves to answer our prayers, and he does, but, but we have to understand that, that God's vision for us is not this immediate temporal comfort. His vision for us is for the ultimate good. And so he answers his pr- our prayers in a way that will bring about his good in our lives, will build character in our lives. And so many times I think we miss out on God's best for us because we bail out too early. Oh, I, I prayed about that. What? Two or three days? I mean, can we hang on? Can we hold on? Can we stay with God? Can we be committed? Can we trust and believe that he has the answer, that he is the answer? And we're not going to give up. We're not going to give up. We're not going to walk away. We're, we're, we're going to hold on until he blesses our lives. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we'll, we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Maybe you're at this phase of, the journey, of your journey right now, where it seems like you've been in a struggle and you don't know how long you can keep going. And I say, don't give up. Don't let go of God. Don't bail out. Don't run from it. You know, so many times we get ourselves into problems over a long, long time. And then we want the answer to get out of that problem immediately. Let's not demand that God fixes things on our timetable. Let's allow him to walk us through this process of transformation in our lives, and let's not short-circuit the work that he wants to do. The man asked him, back to Jacob's story, what is your name? Jacob, he answered. And that brings us to another phase of the journey of God's transforming work in our lives. We experience a crisis but we're going to stay in this. We're going to remain faithful to God. We're going to press on. We're going to press into him. And then he wants to bring us to a place of a recognition or of an admission of our guilt. In this phase, we are asked to own our part of the problem. So often when we find ourselves in crisis, we instinctively think, oh, this person did this to me, or this person did this, or this, and it's happening to me. And and God wants to bring us into a place on our journey with him where we own our part of the problem, where we admit our guilt. And now what does this have to do with that verse I just read? The man asked, what is your name? Jacob, he answered. Kind of a strange request. Obviously, God knew his name. Why is he asking Jacob his name? Not because he needed to know, but I think he wanted Jacob to admit who he was. See, in ancient cultures, names carried a lot more weight than they do now. Now, a lot of times we pick names for our children just because we like how it sounds. Or we, like for me, I had people that I respected in my life. And I wanted to name children after, after them. And if there was somebody I didn't really respect and that name came up, I was like, no, that, that one's out. But in ancient times, so much was in a name. There was so much meaning wrapped up in the names that they were given. It said something about the person. 
Guess what Jacob's name meant? It meant supplanter, manipulator. Sometimes we say deceiver. Basically, I think it was kind of the equivalent, and I'm sure this is not totally true because this would be an obvious. Like if someone, someone was named con man. But that, that was the meaning behind Jacob, supplanter, manipulator. And Jacob did a fine job of living up to his name. He manipulated his brother into giving him his birthright. He manipulated his father into blessing him. He got manipulated by his father-in-law, and then he manipulated him right back. And I believe when this person he's wrestling with here asked him what his name was, and he responded, my name is Jacob, I believe he was doing more than just telling him his name. I believe he was owning up to who he is, who he was. He was owning up to his flawed character. He was owning up to his sin. Before, he had always ran when the heat got turned up. But now he came face to face with it. He wouldn't run. And he said, I'm Jacob. Here's the lesson in it for us, I believe. And that is, we will never be able to change. We will never be transformed until we openly and honestly admit who we are before the Lord. And we come clean with our sin. The Bible says in James 4 verse 6, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. There's little more humbling than to say, you know what? I'm going to own up to that. I remember some years back, the church I pastored in Ohio, we were going through quite a thing in leadership and trying to figure out the structure, what the structure of the pastoral team and leadership team should be. And our leadership team at the time talked about it a lot, and I could see pretty quickly that I was kind of on a different side of it than, than what a lot of the leadership team was, but we always preached that, you know, when we make a decision here, it's as a team, and we, we can have our arguments, and we can have our discussions and our debates, but once the decision is made, we walk out of here, we're a team, we all own it, and this is kind of how it happened, but then we put it to the church to affirm this structure plan that we had, and I, as a member of the congregation, voted against it. without the leadership team knowing. And oh, God convicted me of that. Here you are in your leadership group and they all think you're with them and you're gonna support them and then you... It was one of the hardest things I've ever had to do is call up our lead elder. So we need to talk. So I went over to his office where he worked, sat down, and I confessed what God had been convicted me of, that sin of deception. Oh, I never want to do that again. It's painful, but 
something happened. He forgave me, extended grace, as did the rest of the leadership team. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. That's the position I want to be in. I want to be the recipient of grace. God gives grace to the humble. Grace, his enabling power to change and to live as he has called us to live. This is so key, folks. If, if Riverview is going to be a place where lives are changed, if Riverview is going to be a place where people are brought into fellowship with Jesus Christ and with the body of Christ and a place where people are sent out in life-changing ways to be ministers of the gospel in all aspects of your community, then Riverview has to be a place where we take off our mask, where we come before the Lord and before each other and say, this is who I am and this is the grace that I need. Guess what? When we do that, when we own up to our shortcomings, to our sin, nobody's going to be surprised. Well, I don't know. Maybe they'll be a little surprised, but probably not. Because I think what a lot of times happens is everybody knows what our problem is. They're just a little too afraid to get in our face and talk to us about it. And God certainly isn't going to be surprised when we admit who we are to him. He knows He's waiting for us to admit it that we see it to ourselves. And then grace comes. And friends, you will find grace in this body. I know you will. I hear it in the Sunday school class and testimonies here. When we're at a crisis point, and we recognize that our greatest crisis is not this temporal thing that we're facing, but it's our struggle with God. For will I believe that he is in control, and he's got this, and will I do what he says? And then when I own up to my part of the problem, this is who I am, God. I need your grace. Then that next phase of the journey, a changed life. Look at God's loving and gracious response to Jacob when he owns up to his part of the problem. Then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with men and have overcome. Notice what happens here. He gets a brand new identity. The man says, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel. And this is not just, a, you used to be called William and now I'm going to call you Bill. This is, a, this is a transformation that happens. He says, your name will no longer be supplanter and manipulator. It will be Israel, which means prince with God. And I believe God wants to do that with you, with me, with each of us this morning. You know, you admitted you're a deceiver or 
you're a worrier or you're a, an angry person, a, a selfish person, a, a lustful person, a, a gossip, whatever it might be. And I'm, I'm glad you admitted that. I'm glad you owned up to that. But then God comes along and says, beneath all your hangups, beneath all that sin, you know, I'm going to forgive you. I'm going to extend grace. And I'm giving you this new identity, a new identity that matches the potential that I see in you. I want to close this morning by taking just a few minutes, just in quietness before the Lord, to think about what phase of the journey of transformation that you might be in. And let me say, in my life, in our lives, we go through these phases over and over. And so you might have one of them thought, oh, yeah, that's familiar, because you've been through it time and time again. But what phase are you in? Do you find yourself this morning facing some kind of struggle, some kind of crisis in your life? And I'm going to ask you to do something different this morning than I often would. Often when I would, you know, say something about, you know, do you have a need? Come to the altar. Let me pray for you. You pray, pour our heart to God. Let God, I don't say these words, but rescue you from it. But what I'm going to ask of you this morning when you come, as our sister has, I'm going to ask you to wrestle with these two questions. Now, I'm not going to ask you to pray, and I'm not going to pray, oh, God, rescue you from the... I'm going to pray, I'm going to ask you to pray and to talk to God. Do I trust in you? And will I do what you say? Secondly, if you are in this crisis, you've been there, and you're ready to bail out on God, I don't know, maybe someone here this morning is at a place where you're about ready to walk out on your marriage. Can't do it anymore. I say, hang on. Don't let go of God. Don't let go of God. Whatever the crisis is that you're facing, that you're walking through, don't let go of God. Hang on. Hang on. Until he answers, until he blesses. And maybe you're at a place in the process, the, the journey that he's asking you to admit who you are. Just to say, God, I admit it. Here's my sin. This is who I am. And if you do, I believe God will come alongside and say, I forgive you. Here's grace. Here's grace. And here's your new name. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Would you come? If God is nudging you, just come. Just come.
Father, we thank you this morning for your presence here among us. We thank you that you care so desperately for each one of your children. You long for us to be free, free from sin. You long for us, Lord, to walk in wholeness and fullness of life. You long for us to be set free from those things that bind us. And Lord, you long for us to recognize you as Lord, that we are not the master of our own lives, you are. And Lord, whether we're here at the front this morning, whether we're sitting in our seat this morning, Lord, I recognize that I have two questions to answer this morning. One, do I trust that you are in control and that you will handle whatever it is that I'm facing in my life? And two, will I obey and do what you're asking me to do? And Lord, I say yes. I say yes. Father, I thank you for your word and how we learn and, and grow as we encounter you in your word. And I pray that would continue throughout this evening, the next few evenings, God, that you would continue to just lead us into a, an encounter with you that does that transforming work that you want to do in our lives. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.